I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, if you will. We've been going through the, uh, the Gospel of John, and we've worked our way up to the seventh chapter. Um, John starts a, a new section in uh, the seventh chapter. And uh, we'll, uh, it's, uh, seventh chapter is interesting because it, it shows us Jesus and the way he dealt with different groups of people. And, and uh, John is trying to show us uh, how Jesus dealt with, uh, uh, well, literally how he dealt with his enemies. And um, you remember that, this, that uh, John's gospel was the last one that was written. It was written probably 60 years uh, or so, thereabouts. After uh, Jesus was raised from the dead, John is um, most probably in his 90s, in somewhere around 93 A.D. And Jerusalem was uh, destroyed in uh, 70 A.D., overrun by the Romans, and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So it was um, John's gospel was one of two New Testament letters that were written after the, uh, the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. This one, uh, the gospel of John, and then uh, uh Revelation, which John was also the author of. And uh, so we'll start in uh, chapter 7, um, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 5, and then we'll stop and make some comments. It said, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, that means in Judea, where the Jews were uh, in uh, predominant rule, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews that is speaking of there are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and so forth. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he that himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Verse 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him. Now, where it says neither did his brethren believe in him, there's a, uh, there's a relationship back to the previous chapter. The brethren that it's talking about is not his disciples. It can't be, because if you'll back up into chapter 6, uh, you'll see that, uh, that in verse, 19, uh, verse 69, it says Peter is speaking for the, those, uh, the 12. He's speaking for those that are left after the, uh, the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes and Jesus claiming that uh, unless you eat my bread and drink... Uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And then uh, the question in verse 67, Jesus asked them, said, will you also go away? Verse 68, then Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And notice verse 69, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, now, who is, uh, who is Peter speaking for? He's speaking for the 12. Jesus then answers and says, well, I know you think you're talking for all 12 of you, but not all 12 of you are on board because he knew about Judas and he knew what was going to happen. So the brethren that he's talking about can't be the disciples, meaning the twelve. Well, then who are the brethren? The brethren is his family. Now, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 69 and verse 8. This is a psalm of David. And it says this. It says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Now, some people will say, well, that's David talking about himself. But the next verse, verse 9 of Psalm 69, says, For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now, this is what John quotes. Verse 9 is what John quotes in uh, John chapter 2 and verse 17, when Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple, cleansed the the temple of the money changers. And John says, we remembered after the fact that the Old Testament said, Psalm 69, verse 9, the zeal of thy house has eaten me up. And they said that was in reference to Jesus and the action that he took in cleansing the temple. Well, if verse 9 is referencing Jesus, then why wouldn't verse 8 reference Jesus? 
of Psalm 69. In fact, it did. And it says the Old Testament prophecy was, I am a stranger in my own house, an alien unto my mother's children. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? He didn't say an alien to my brothers and sisters, an alien unto my mother's children. These brethren that are being spoken of here are the, are the brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters that he had, the children of Mary. So it says when, uh, when uh, John starts a new section here, there's something about the relationship that he's going to have with the people in this chapter and how he deals with them that John considers important to show the deity of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, let's back up a little bit and see what they said. Now, the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand, verse 2. Uh, the last time Jesus has been in Jerusalem was in chapter 5 where he healed the... Uh, uh, the man at the pool of Bethesda. And he did that on the Sabbath day. And you remember that created a real stir and, and a uh, real problem. And so Jesus left Jerusalem in chapter 6 to go into Galilee. Now he's coming from Galilee and going to go back to Jerusalem. But his brothers, and ha- when I say brothers, you understand I mean half-brothers and sisters. His half-brothers and sisters are saying, you need to go back to Jerusalem. You need to go back to Judea where the Jews are, where the religious leaders are, so that they can see the things that you're doing. And if these miracles that you're doing, if these miracles that you're claiming to do, and folks, please understand, Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't follow him around. They weren't part of the five thousand, the feeding of the 5,000. They weren't there in Jerusalem. Well, they were, the, the brothers were there in Jerusalem in chapter 5, but they weren't with Jesus. They weren't on board with what was going on. They've been experiencing the reproach of those that are saying, boy, your brother is really stirring things up. He's breaking every law that there is. Now his brothers, and maybe his sisters too, whoever's there, now his brothers are coming back at him and they're making accusations against him. I want you to understand something, folks. Nobody should know more than them. Mary's testimony of how Jesus was born. You can't tell me that Mary didn't gather everybody around and say, look, you guys need to understand something. He's different. (laughs) Here's why he's different. There was an angel that appeared to me. And he told me about God's plan. And I said, well, okay, but how's that going to work? And he said, the Holy Ghost is going to come and overshadow you. And he did, and I had, a, I had a baby. I was pregnant, and then I gave birth to the baby. This is not your real brother. This is not Joseph's son. Who's going to know that more than his family? If Mary didn't, didn't tell anybody else that, and we don't know whether she did or not, but if Mary didn't tell anybody else that, she's certainly going to tell the family. But his brother still didn't believe. And so what do they say? They said unto him, verse 3, Depart hence and go into Judea. You need to go where the religious leaders are. Get there in front of everybody that your disciples also may see your works that thou doest. Now, what disciples is he talking about? He's talking about the ones that left in chapter 6 and verse 66. After Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back. Went back where? Went back to Judea, went back to Jerusalem and walked no more with him. See, a lot of people had followed Jesus out of Jerusalem because of the miracles that were done at the Feast of Pentecost in chapter 5. It's also called a Feast of the Jews. It's gone from being God's plan and God's feast to being the Jews' ritual. Ritual, And so a lot of people followed him out of Jerusalem into Galilee. And now when they hear something that offends them that they can't understand that sounds really, really bad, they turn back and go, in, go back to Jerusalem. So his, now his brothers are saying, you need to go back. You need to show your disciples. Well, what do they know about his miracles? All they know, folks, is the things that they've heard. And they don't know whether to believe it or not. They know Jesus better than anybody. They grew up with the guy. He didn't look like any hot stuff when he was a kid to them. He didn't look like he was any different from the rest of them. 
There was nothing about him in as, as far as miracle works or anything like that that took place in his life that they would think all their lives, wow, this guy really is sent from God. He wrestled with the other kids just like boys do, just like brothers do. He seemed normal to them. There would be nothing about it that would cause them to say or even question, man, what is it about this guy? He seemed like a normal guy. And so now they're saying, you need to go back to Jerusalem so that your disciples find out about the works that you're doing. For, verse 4, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret. And himself, he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Folks, here's one of the things that you need to get about this chapter. John is pointing out that Jesus suffered indignities. As the Son of God, he suffered indignities in his family. His brothers are challenging him about miracles. If this is, if, if you're really doing this stuff, you say you're from God. You say you've been sent from heaven. We've heard everybody talking about it and that eating your flesh and drinking your blood stuff. We have no idea what you're doing. Mark chapter 3 verse 21 says that Jesus' uh, disciples, the press was so great about him that when he would go home to Capernaum, we know where he went, we know where he was, uh, uh, where he grew up, he grew up in Nazareth, we knew that, we know that he, uh, moved to Capernaum when he started his ministry, just before he started his ministry. He lived in Capernaum all throughout the, the three years of his ministry. He had a house there. He took, he was responsible since Joseph is off the scene as the firstborn, he's responsible for taking care of his mother. That's why on the cross, he turned to John, this gospel author, and said, Behold your mother, and said to his mother, Behold your son. In other words, he delivered the care of his mother unto, to John, not his brothers or his sisters. Why? Because they didn't believe in it. Now, folks, here's something else that's interesting about this. James, the author of the book that bears his letter, is not James the brother of John. James the brother of John, who was one of the twelve, was beheaded by Herod. And he saw that that pleased everybody, so he took Peter and was going to behead Peter, cut Peter's head off too, but you remember the angel spared him. Well, if that's not the James, then who is the James that wrote the letter to the church, that was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, starting in Acts chapter 15, and wrote the letter to the church? It's James, the half-brother of Jesus. Tradition tells us that Jesus appeared to his half-brother, James, one of these very guys here, probably one of the ones that are saying the things about him and about his miracles, taunting him. Probably one of the same ones, he appears to James, shows that he is risen from the dead, and James becomes exalted to the position of the pastor of the church of Jerusalem following Peter. And what are they doing? They're saying, if you're really doing these miracles, if these miracles are really proof that you're God, then you need to go to Jerusalem where everybody can see it. Now, verse 4 is telling because it shows their motive. They could not care less that Jesus has disciples. They're not interested in Jesus gathering a crowd. They're not interested in Jesus finishing the work of God or, or finishing God's plan for his life. None of that is interesting them to them at all in any way whatsoever. The only thing they're after is if Jesus is famous because of the miracles, if he's famous because of the things people say that he's doing, we don't know, haven't been there, haven't seen them. But if he's famous because of those things, then that'll make us stand in pretty good stead too. That'll make us popular as his family. That's all they're after, folks. And it identifies they didn't believe in him, but they're taunting him regarding his miracles. And Jesus answers and says in verse 6, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, what does he mean, my time is not yet come? He's already entered his ministry. 
He's already begun doing miracles. He's fed the 5,000. He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. He's done lots of other things in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover in chapter 2. Lots of things in Galilee, in Capernaum, and other places. He's been doing miracles since he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. What does he mean, my time has not yet come? It's referencing what they said in verse 4. They said, if you do these things, if thou doest these things... If thou doest these things, if you're really doing miracles, well, that says they don't know. If you're really doing these miracles because you're the son of God, like you claim, show yourself to the world. That's what Jesus is responding to in verse six. He said, it's not time to show myself to the world. Now, they don't know what he's talking about. No way, no way could they know what he's talking about. What he is talking about is Jesus shows himself to the world when he comes back after the tribulation and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. He comes back with power and by the way, the church comes back with it. That's when he's talking about. He's talking about when the sky peels back and every eye sees Jesus coming back in his power and his glory. He says, it's not time for that. But then notice what he says. He says, but your time is always ready. What does that mean? He's saying men are always going to do what you're doing, and that is seeking their own gain from the things of God. You're just seeking popularity. You're just seeking whatever you can benefit from this thing and from whatever God has given me to do. Your time is always ready. That's always what men are going to do. Well, then we should be aware of that, shouldn't we? We should be able to judge and discern rightly what things are being done for the glory of God and what things people are doing for their own glory, because that's all they're after. They want to use Jesus to climb the ladder of society. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but me it hates. Why? Because you're acting like the rest of the world acts. But me it will hate. Why? Because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil, because I act differently than you. Folks, anybody that acts differently than the way that the world normally does is going to be hated by those who don't want the light shown on what they're doing. Verse 8, go ye up unto this feast. I go not up, not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. What's he saying? He's telling them, I'm not going. Now, here's a problem. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says there's three times, there's three feasts during each year that every Jewish male has to go to Jerusalem. Passover, Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. He's got to go. But he's telling them, he's known unto them by reputation as a lawbreaker. So now he leaves it out for them to think he's going to break another law. They're certainly not going because of their love for God. They're going because it's the law of Moses. They get in trouble if they don't go. Now, what does this mean? Families go up to Jerusalem to these feasts and processions. And everybody knows there's a big parade. You remember when um, uh, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus... um, uh, I'm sorry, it was one of the feasts, one of these three feasts that Jesus went up on um, uh, what we know of as Palm Sunday. And everybody saw him coming in the gate. That was a con- that was a, uh, a ritualistic thing. That was a commonplace practice. Everybody for these feasts would gather at the gates to see families come in. I don't know if anybody was ca- taking attendance or not, but it was something where people would be announced. Here comes the family of Joseph and Mary. Here comes the family of whoever. Here comes this family. Here comes that family. It became a real celebration. And uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was the harvest festival. It was the festival or the feast that everybody came to Jerusalem because of the harvest and the crops and the, uh, the abundance that God had provided and so forth. So it was the big celebration. And so as such, everybody is excited to be there. They're watching who's coming in. They're seeing old friends, people that have lived in different places that they haven't seen since the last feast or 
time that they came to Jerusalem or whatever the case is. And so it becomes something that's, that's widespread. So when his family goes without him, that kind of disrupts the Jews' plans. Now remember why Jesus was in Galilee to begin with. In verse 1 it says, Jesus when he walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, in Judea in other words, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews that are being spoken of are the religious leaders. He didn't got, did not go where he knew they wanted to kill him. Now folks, um, I could take a long time on this and I really don't want to, but let me just make a couple of comments here. Jesus did not take the, the, the typical word of faith approach to ministry. What I mean by that is there have been so many faith preachers, people that believe the word of God, people that believed in the authority in the name of Jesus, that they saw danger ahead of them and they just pushed their way anyway and said, well, bless God, we'll just use the name of Jesus and make this happen and died. Jesus didn't do that. The Bible says when Jesus knew that they wanted to kill him, he went somewhere else. This is such a common thing. Uh, I, I'm thinking of a situation right now where there's a, there's a, a certain lady, uh, tall, white, blonde hair, blue eyes, typical Western, you know, Scandinavian look. And she was invited. She's involved in uh, some sex trafficking type of ministry, and, and God's really used her in a lot of real, real neat ways. And she was invited to go somewhere into the Middle East and tell about sex trafficking. And um, um, she was trying to gather support and all this kind of stuff. She was so excited about going, and people that are over there as missionaries found out about it and said, that's the last place in the world you want to go. Now, if you look differently, it might be different. If you did not stand out from the crowd so so blatantly, then that might be an okay thing for you to do. But you are the last person that needs to come here. Well, I don't know if she went or not, but the last thing I heard is she was planning to just push ahead and use the name of Jesus. This is an open door that God has provided and so forth. Folks, every door that opens is not God pulling the, pulling the doorknob. The devil can open doors too. And for that reason, it's important for us to be led by the Holy Ghost, no matter what the situation is, whether it looks good or whether it looks bad. God leads you through some things that don't look like it's going to work out, but it does because he's in it. There are other things that look like it's going to work out just great. Oh, man, look at the opportunity God, God has given us, and God's not in it at all. You better learn to be led by the Holy Ghost. So, verse 9. When Jesus had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then he also, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast among his family, knowing that his family was there, and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he's a good man. And others said, no, he's just a deceiver of the people. Howbeit, no man spoke openly of him. This was just stuff in whispers. Some people said, I think he's a good guy. He's doing good things. Other people said, no, I think he's just deceiving everybody. But nobody was willing to speak out openly for fear of the Jews. So it wasn't a secret that the Jews wanted to kill him, was it? Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus is teaching them stuff that's blowing them away. And their concern is not the doctrine or who gave it to him or this being the word of God or anything like that. Their focus is on man's institutions of learning. 
how can this guy know these things when he's never been to school? Can I ask you a question? Did it seem to matter that he hadn't been to school? He's telling them things that are wowing them. He's telling them things that they've never heard before. He's telling them stuff that's beyond anything they ever got in all the good schools. Yet their only concern is, how can this guy say the things that he's saying in the way that he's saying them when he's never been to school? Folks, I'm all for education. But if you're educating your mind at the expense of your spirit, you're doing yourself a disservice. I want my kids to be educated. But I want them to know spiritual things much more than I want them to know book learning. That always goes over real big. Because people hear that and they think that I'm against education. And I'm not. But I'm telling you what. I've got all kinds of education. And it didn't do me any good where the things of God are concerned. Jesus answered them and said, verse 16, My doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. His that sent me. In other words, the things that I know, I don't know because I went to some school. I know them because God gave it to me himself. That's the best education you can have, folks. You learn from God, learn from the Holy Ghost. That's a whole lot better than anything anybody in university is going to teach you. I have not found a professor that's as good a teacher as the Holy Ghost in all my years. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Verse eight, verse 17 is really interesting because he's saying the same thing that James, his half-brother, says to the church in chapter 1 in verse 22 of the letter he writes. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Jesus very clearly says there's one way to know for sure whether this doctrine is from God or if this is just of me, and that is to do it. A lot of people want to know the answers before they become doers of the word. It doesn't work that way. Because the word is going to teach you and instruct you to do some things that don't seem to your mind like they're ever going to work out. But when you become a doer of the word, then it works out and then you realize that really is God. We could go around the room and I'm sure there'd be 50 or maybe 100 testimonies of people that started tithing when it looked like they they worked it out on paper. It looked like there's no way for it to work, but they became doers of the word, and somehow God worked it out, and then they found out, wow, this really is God. But you try to make the math work up front, you're deceiving yourself. You're just a hearer and not a doer. You'll never know apart from being a doer of the word. For that reason, Brother Hagin used to say this all the time. He said, what you know is not what you've heard. What you know is what you're doing. That's what you know. Only what you're doing. Verse 18. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. He's saying that of himself. He said, I'm not seeking, I'm not saying this to seek my own glory. How do we know? Because he snuck into town. Jesus would have had every opportunity to gather an entourage. Come into fanfare. The miracle worker has arrived. He didn't do that. He did everything to avoid people knowing that he was there. He snuck in to fulfill what the law of Moses said that he was supposed to do, but not draw attention to himself. Then he says in verse 19, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keep the law. Why do you go about to kill me? Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the healing of the man in chapter 5 at the Pool of Bethesda. 
the man that he healed on the Sabbath day. That's why they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath day and wouldn't say that he did the wrong thing. He would not claim or, or admit that the law of Moses uh, refuses or, or prohibits any kind of work like that on the Sabbath day, and he's going to prove it to him. He's going to nail him to the wall. He's saying, Moses gave you the law, but you don't keep it. Yet you want to kill you want to kill me. You seek to kill me for healing the man on the Sabbath day. The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. Now I want you to notice it does not say the Jews say that. It says the people said that. Now remember the feast is some uh, is a, a point in time where people are coming from all different quarters. Not everybody knows the Jews want to kill him. The Jews certainly know that. The Jews in Jerusalem certainly know that. But the Jews that have come from other parts of, of and other territories and other regions don't know that. They make up this crowd called the people. So the people that don't know anything about the Jews wanting to kill Jesus say, you have, you have a devil. Now that's just a, 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 a then present day, uh, phrase for saying you're crazy. They're not really saying you've got a devil. They're not really saying the devil is in, uh, is, is possessing you or anything like that. They're just saying you're crazy. Who wants to kill you? Jesus doesn't explain to the ones that doesn't, don't know. He just goes and answers and says unto them, verse 21, I have done one work and you all marvel. That's the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. Then he tells them how they're the lawbreakers too. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it's of Moses, but of the fathers. God instituted circumcision with Abraham. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. I thought the Sabbath day was a day of rest. They don't consider circumcision to be contrary to the law of Moses. Yet Jesus answers him and says in verse 23, If a man on the, circumc- on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken. In other words, and that doesn't break the law of Moses. Are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Now what is circumcision? Circumcision is a sign that someone has entered into the covenant of Abraham with God. God's covenant with Abraham. It's a sign that someone is entering into that covenant. In other words, it's a means for them to be made whole according to the covenant. That's why Jesus uses the phrase that he does. He says, you circumcise somebody to make them whole in as far as the covenant of Abraham is concerned. Why are you angry at me? Because I made the man whole in body. Are you not doing the same thing through circumcision? Jesus is accusing them of breaking the law that they're accusing him of breaking. Verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. In other words, don't pick and choose this thing the way that you want it to be. Judge righteously. Then says some of them of Jerusalem, is this not he whom they seek to kill? These are the ones that are in Jerusalem. These are the people that live in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem and know what the Jews have have attempted to do. They know the Jews, Jewish leaders' plan. Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Now it's going to show something about the people that live in Jerusalem that aren't making up the Pharisees or the council or the religious leaders. Now you've got the pride of the individuals that are saying, do they think something that can't be true? We know better than that. Because they're going to talk about where Jesus came from. Howbeit we know this man whence he is. In other words, where he came from. But when Christ cometh, no man knows whence he is or where he comes from. Now this is not talking about the Messiah. Everybody knows the Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about where he came from spiritually. Not just geographically. 
Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught them and said, You both know me and know whence I am or where I came from. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. In other words, he's saying, you know something about me, but you sure don't know God. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. As we said before, Jesus did not specifically or purposely go where they tried to kill him. When he found out the Jews tried to kill him, he went into Galilee. But he didn't have anything to fear from anybody. He's back in Jerusalem because the law requires him to be there. He's teaching, showing himself to be the Christ, knows what he's doing. He's saying, I came down from heaven. He's saying the same things that he started saying in chapter 6. He's saying the same things that he identified in chapter 5 that caused him to want to kill him in the first place. He's claiming to have come down from heaven. He's identifying himself as the Messiah. Now, you need to understand something. John is the only gospel writer that tells us that Jesus repeatedly identified himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Matthew doesn't do that. Mark doesn't do that. Luke doesn't do that. Luke, uh, Matthew and Luke are identified specifically, or those letters are written specifically to the Jews. They were written shortly thereafter when Jesus was crucified, certainly before 70 A.D. And they were written specifically so that they would be able to identify Jesus as the, the, um, uh, the king of Israel. And they were written to, Luke was written to identify Jesus as the perfect man worthy of being the king of the Jews. Mark was written to the Gentiles. Nobody identifies that, the, that Jesus referred to himself and claimed to be the, the Messiah, claimed to be the son of God like John does. And it's everything that John tells because of the circumstances of the day when John wrote this. There were Christians who were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. Well, they were claiming to be Christians. I don't know how you can be. But they were claiming to be Christians, saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, and others were saying that Jesus was not the Son of God. He was a great man, he was a good prophet, but he wasn't the Son of God. And that teaching had pervaded the church, had infiltrated the church. And and, um, What's his name? John is writing this thing, at least for one reason. One of the purposes that he's writing this is to show that Jesus said again and again and again that he was the son of God. What does that mean? That means he's either the son of God or he's a liar. He can't be a good man. Now, you get this a lot nowadays. People will say, well, I believe Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet, just like Muhammad was, just like Confucius was. There are many paths to God and so forth. That cannot be true. Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. He either told the truth or he lied. And there's this idea in the world nowadays that we have to be tolerant of everything. Jesus was very intolerant of other ways to God. He said, I'm the only way. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, Jesus either told the truth about that or he was the most deceived person in the the universe, in the history of mankind. He could not have been a good man and just mistaken. Good men are not mistaken when it comes to leading people astray. So he either told the truth or he's the biggest liar ever, meaning everybody should either be a Christian or should either discount Christianity as having no value whatsoever. There's no middle ground where Jesus and Christianity are concerned. Then they sought to take him, verse 30, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man has done? Notice the miracles, what they did and what they were intended to do, and that was to show that Jesus had come from God. 
And some people saw it. Some people saw it. Some people fell into it. They, they, they accepted it for what it was. They said, when the Messiah does come, could he do more than this guy's doing? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Good luck with that. They've already sought to take lay hands on him in verse 30, and that didn't work. Then said Jesus unto them, verse 33, Yet a little while am I with you. Three years to be exact. And then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am thither you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Where will he go that we cannot find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles? The dispersed means the Jews. Will he go unto the Jews that are living outside of Jerusalem and Judea and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come? Now, folks, that's exactly what happened when they went to the tomb after he was risen from the dead. They looked for him, but the body wasn't there. And so they manufactured some story about how somebody had come and stolen his body away during the night, bribed the Roman soldiers that had seen the angel and fell like dead men when they did see the angel. The ones that knew the truth about how the stone had rolled away and Jesus had been raised from the dead. They witnessed it. And so they bribed them and came up with a story because they couldn't find him. Well, why? Why couldn't they find him? Why is the tomb empty? Because Jesus went to the Father. And Jesus is saying, since you've rejected me, you'll never be able to go where I'm going. Because, folks, there's only one thing that counts, and that is, what do you believe about Jesus? And frankly, that's not just true where salvation is concerned. It's true where everything concerning the things of God are concerned. After you're born again, it still comes down to what do you believe about Jesus? Signs and wonders and miracles depend on what do you believe about Jesus. Healing depends on what do you believe about Jesus. Financial provision depends on what do you believe about Jesus. It all comes down to one and only one question, that is, what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? Well, I believe he was the Son of God when he paid the price for sin, but I don't believe he's the Son of God for healing. Okay? That person will never receive healing. But if he was the Son of God in one respect, why wouldn't he be the Son of God in every respect? And if being the Son of God provided a miracle where forgiveness of sins was concerned, then why wouldn't being the Son of God provide a miracle in every other area too? It all comes down to what do you believe about Jesus? Verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, that means the big, big celebration, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit. Now this is, uh, uh, well, let me finish the verse. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that should believe on him, they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm going to refer you back to John chapter 4, where Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well of Samaria. He said in verse 13, John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now I want you to notice he's talking about the, the, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, which is referred to as water. Water is used as a type of the Holy Spirit in chapter 4 just like it is in chapter 7. 
But notice he's talking about two different things. He says that there, that salvation, everlasting life, what we know of as salvation or being born again, is like a well of water that will cause somebody to be able to drink for, drink from forever. But now he's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. He's talking about something that's going to happen in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost just a couple of years from now. He says in chapter 7, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now notice that doesn't belong to the world. That belongs to the believers. Salvation belongs to the world. The baptism of the Holy Ghost or being filled with the Holy Ghost only belongs to the church. You ever tried to get somebody filled with the Holy Ghost that's not saved? You can't do it. I did that one time. I assumed somebody was born again because of their interest in the things of God. I just assumed. And so I started trying to lay hands on them, tell them about the Holy Ghost. They believed. They said, yeah, okay, I see it in the Bible. Uh, I'm ready and, and that kind of stuff. And I tried and tried and tried for about 30 minutes. I've never had such a hard time trying to get somebody filled with the Holy Ghost. Because if you know what you're doing, know what to tell them to expect and to show them in the Bible what it says, what the Scripture says about it, it's an easy thing to do. Anybody can do it. Anybody can get people filled with the Holy Ghost. But I was having the hardest time. And I stopped, I backed up, and I said, Lord, what in the world is going on here? Just said that within myself. He said, get them born again first. Then I asked him, I said, have you ever been saved? Have you ever been born again? She said, well, no, I haven't. I said, oh, dear God, what an idiot I am. I said, first things first, let's do this. Let her into the sinner's prayer, laid hands on her to be filled with the Holy Ghost, and she lifted hands and started talking in tongues fluently. Because being baptized in the Holy Spirit belongs to the church, it belongs to the believers, belongs to the children of God, not to the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if any man believeth on me, he that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what's the difference between a well and a river? It's water in both, isn't it? What's the difference? The well is for personal benefit. People have wells that they draw from for their own benefit. Rivers bless and and provide for everybody. The baptism of the Holy Ghost that he's referring to here is something that will provide service. The works of God going forth in a person's life to benefit other people, not just yourself. Verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth... This is the prophet. Now, this is the prophet that Moses said was to come, speaking of the Messiah. So the, through his miracles, people believed. Through his teaching, people believed that he was the Messiah. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, wait a minute, shall Christ come out of Galilee? See, here's where people get their thinking involved. They've got the Holy Ghost showing them right in front of them. They've got the Holy Ghost showing them this guy was sent from God. This is the Messiah. But some people are saying, wait a minute. We know where he came from, though. Shall Christ come from Galilee? Now, what do they mean by Galilee? Nazareth is in Galilee. Capernaum is in Galilee. Nazareth is where Jesus was born or was brought up. He was born in Bethlehem, like the Scriptures say, but not everybody knew that because he was from the time that people knew anything about Jesus, they knew him in Nazareth. Then the second thing is, when he moved to Capernaum, he's living in Capernaum during his earthly ministry. So the people are saying, wait a minute, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that Jesus is going to, or the, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. He's not from Bethlehem. Well, he was, but they didn't know it. And so they let their misunderstanding of the truth keep them from seeing the reality that Jesus was the Christ. Some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh out of the seed of David? 
and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. Folks, I guess you could say that these folks were too smart for their own good. They thought they knew something, and what they thought they knew kept them out of the truth. So there was a division among the people because of him, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. This is the third time that it says people were willing to take Jesus by force, but the power of God kept him from doing it. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. They recognized from his teaching that there was something different about this guy. Then answered them, the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Well, there's the proof. But notice they're saying that that is the proof. They're saying, how could you possibly be deceived? We don't believe he's the Christ. Therefore, he can't be. Now, folks, I got to tell you, there's, that's a pretty common thought in uh, some circles today in the church world. Because you can see for yourself that the Bible says, for example, that the baptism of the Holy Ghost belongs to them. If uh, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, Luke 11 says, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? It's pretty easy to see that Jesus, the same scripture that says Jesus paid the price for sin, paid the price for sickness. And so a lot of people will go to pastors and they'll go to ministers and they'll say, well, wait a minute, the Bible says this. What about this verse? And they'll take the same position. Oh, you can't believe in that healing stuff. Do you see me believing in that? You can't possibly believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is something that's for us today because you can see clearly that I don't have it. And people use that same excuse now. And bless people's heart, they're led astray by following who they think are safe guides. The Pharisees therefore said, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. They're saying, we know better than you. And because you don't know the law of Moses, that's why you're easily deceived. Yet who are the ones that were deceived? Nicodemus said unto him, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them. You remember this is Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus is sent by the Jews to talk to Jesus and say, um, how do you do these miracles? We know that nobody can do this unless somebody is sent from God. It says that Jesus came, that Nicodemus came to him by night. Every time Nicodemus is referred to in the New Testament, it identifies him as the guy that came by night. The guy that tried to sneak in to ask questions of Jesus because he didn't want to be seen in the daylight. Now Nicodemus seems to be changing his attitude a little bit. His conversation with Jesus in chapter 3, along with the things that have happened that he's been uh, uh, a witness to, seem to have changed his opinion of who Jesus is. Nicodemus said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, does our law judge any man before it hears him and knows what he doeth? Well, that seems like a legitimate question, doesn't it? Can we pass judgment on this guy before we talk to him ourselves? Now, what have they done to talk to him? Well, they've tried to corner him in certain uh, crowds and they've been rebuffed every time. Outside of that, they're just guilty or they're... Um, their experience, I don't want to call it guilt, but their experience is to send Nicodemus by nights to get certain information so that nobody would know they were doing it. So he asks a simple question. He says, does not our law or does our law judge any man before it hears him and knows what he doeth? They answered him and said, art thou also of Galilee? 
Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. In other words, they're saying, are you one of his too? Folks, here's what religion does. Religion tries to stamp out anybody that shows any question whatsoever. Nicodemus is not saying, I'm against you guys, you you guys are wrong. Nicodemus is not saying, you guys have absolutely missed the plan of God here. He's not saying any of that. He's simply asking a question. He says, does our law not provide for hearing somebody out before we judge him so that we can know the facts? And notice what religion does. Religion tries to stamp out anybody and any idea that disagrees with them because of who they claim to be. The chapter ends with, and every man went into his own house. In other words, it's saying this. And you see this a lot in politics. You see this a lot in the the spirit of the world. Because the same spirit of the world is the same spirit that operates in religion. And that is anybody that raises any kind of question that might have merit, those that claim to be the intellectuals, the ones that know, the ones in power, the ones in whatever, they'll shout the other people down, they'll intimidate them, they'll try to shut them up at any cost so that everybody just ignores what's going on. Look at how many things are being covered up in the in the in what's going on around us. And anybody that asks a question, they're shouted down. Why? Because the whole purpose of the spirit of the world, the devil's behind the spirit of the world just like he's behind the spirit of religion. The whole purpose is to give you the idea, there's nothing to see here, let's move along. But folks, when it comes to the things of God, there are a lot of things to see. There's a lot of things to see. A whole lot of things to see. And God's word reveals just exactly what they are. Notice how Jesus operated. First, he has to deal with his family. They didn't believe in him. They really became his enemies where the things of God and the, and the plan of God for his life was concerned, at least early on. The second group that he had to deal with were the Jews. They were his enemy. They wanted to kill him. The third people that he had to deal with were the crowds at large. And then the fourth people that had to deal, that he had to deal with that didn't believe in him either were the ones that lived in Jerusalem but weren't part of the Jews, uh, the Pharisees and the councils. Every one of those four groups are identified in this chapter as being the enemies of Jesus. What did he do? He simply claimed who he was. He said, I came down from the Father, and he taught them in a way that nobody had ever heard before. It changed some of their ideas. It changed some of their opinions. But then the Jews came in and tried to shut everything down. Folks, the devil's always going to do that. This is a perfect example of the, the parable of the sower, so in the word. One of the best ways that, that the devil operates against people is when they hear the word, he comes immediately They become the wayside. He comes immediately and steals the seed out of their heart. How does he do that? Many times it's through intimidation. Many times it's through saying, you don't know as much as we do, so you need to listen to us. Folks, don't ever take anybody's word for anything when it comes to the things of God. Search it out for yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that Jesus identified himself clearly as who he is and what his purpose was. Father, we receive Jesus as the Son of God, not only the the forgiver of sins, not only the source of our new birth, but we believe he was the Son of God concerning healing. We believe he's the Son of God concerning provision in our lives. We believe he's the Son of God concerning peace and the restoration of families. We believe he's the Son of God in every area of our lives, Father. We believe, therefore, in miracles. We believe that you still do miracles because you never change. We believe in restoration. And the Old Testament says that no one was restored because no one called for restoration. We do, Father. Joel's prophecy 
concerning the day that we live in, the day of the new birth, is that you would restore that which the locust has eaten and that which the canker worm, the years that the canker worm has taken away. We call for restoration, Father, because Jesus is the Son of God. Thank you, Father, for doing great things in our families, doing great things in our church family. Thank you, Father, for signs and wonders and miracles that take place in our homes, not just in our services. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.